0: The sermon passage this morning can be found on page 64 of the blue Bibles in front of you. It's Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 33. Starting in verse 20 Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So what's next?
1: What's next for God's people? That's the question that we come to here today in our text. So we remember where God's people have been. So if you remember kind of a Really brief flyover of the book of Exodus so far. So God's people have been enslaved. They've been oppressed. This was their time in Egypt under Pharaoh. Uh, They've been delivered through Moses. This was the Exodus through the Red Sea. They've been brought out into the wilderness and now they've been set apart. That's what we've been focusing on for the last couple of months, really, right? The giving of the law. This was the thing that set apart God's people from those who were not God's people. So where have they been? God's oppressed people have been set free and set apart. That's the story of the book of Exodus so far. But it does bring about the question, what is next? So what is God's goal for the people that he's won for himself? So right now they're in the desert. Is that that his goal for them? Is that their end point? So they're at Sinai The mountain of God. And remember the picture here. So maybe we've forgotten it, kind of having dwelt on the Ten Commandments. But all that leading up to them made it clear. Mount Sinai, you have God's people dwelling at the foot of the mountain. God's terrifying presence up at the top of the mountain. Moses spends his days interceding for the people. Remember that? Up, down, up, down, up, down. That's what Moses is doing in this section of the book of Exodus. He goes up. He comes down. What do you say? What do you say? This is what's happening. So is this the goal? Is this as good as it gets for God's people? Is this, is this what they've been delivered for? Well, how do we get the answer to that question? Well, interestingly, and maybe kids, here's a lesson for you. Interestingly, one of the really cool things about the Bible is that in order to get answers about what's ahead for God's people, one thing you can do is you can actually look back. We learn the future of God's people by looking at the way God has worked in their past. So what I mean is this. So hundreds of years before and dozens of chapters before this passage here, God spoke to God's people about what is next. So remember back in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord calls this man named Abram to get up from his current place and to go into a new place. God called it a land of promise, this place called Canaan. Genesis 12, 7 says this The Lord appeared to Abram, and he said this To your offspring, I will give this land. So, to your people, I will give this land, this place, people and place. That's what's on God's mind in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 15, the promise is reiterated. We read this earlier, right? After the Lord's people had been enslaved for 400 years, he says, They'll come back to this what? To a place. When the iniquity of the Amorites is complete, Genesis 15, 18 says this, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, Abram saying to your offspring, I will give this land to your people. I will give this place. What's next for God's people in Exodus? What's the plan? What's the goal? Is it simply to bring them out into the desert and kind of leave them there? Not at all. It's to bring his people into his place. That's God's goal. This is the heart of God's promise to his people. I will bring you out in order to bring you in. I will bring you out in order to bring you in. Here in Exodus, the Lord did not bring Israel out of Egypt to give them life in the desert. He brought them out of somewhere terrible to bring them into somewhere beautiful. He brought them out of a place of oppression to bring them into a place of great blessing. He brought them out of suffering to bring them into joy. So church, here's a truth. Here's a promise about our future that we actually learn from Israel's past. The Lord has always brought his people out in order to bring them in. So listen, maybe you're here this morning and maybe you need some encouragement So maybe you're here and you're a Christian. So you're a person who has been brought out of a life of slavery to sin. You've been delivered by God to God through the blood of Christ. You believe that you have faith in that and that's wonderful and you know it. But if you're honest, life right now doesn't exactly feel like the abundant life that you thought it would be. In fact, what you're finding is that belonging to God in a world like this is actually really difficult. Well, here's what we have to remember. Where we are now is not where we will one day be. We have not yet arrived at the Lord's final destination for us. We are a people who are still awaiting the full fulfillment of God's promises to us in Christ. And I think this is a really encouraging point for us this morning. Listen to this. The Lord will not forget his promise to bring us all the way home. That's what we can bank on. The same Lord who brought you out will soon bring you in. He does not deliver his people to leave them in the wilderness. We see this in the life of Israel, and we must see it in our own life as his church. So let's take a look at Exodus 23. We'll see what the Lord has for us here. So again, remember their situation. Israel has been delivered, but they're not yet in Canaan. They're in this place called Sinai. So the plan, though, is to bring them into Canaan, which is called the promised land, right? Just just in case we're slow, he actually calls it the promised land, right? The land that is promised. It's attached to God's promise to his people. The problem is the land is occupied. There's people there. And these are people who are not friendly to the Lord or his people. There's opposition. So what? Well, I want us to observe three Things. (laughs) All right. Outlines. Okay, you know I'm funny with outlines. All right, here, but this is easy. Three, three promises, three questions, two requirements. If you're not a note taker, don't even worry about it. It Doesn't matter. I'll just tell you, you can go back and listen. Doesn't matter. If you if you are, I'm gonna go really slow for you. Three promises. This passage reminds us of three promises. This passage You may not have caught it at first, but it's all about the Lord remembering promises that he's already made to his people. Number one, the Lord remembers the promise of his presence. I'm even giving you all Ps. The Lord remembers the promise of his presence. All along, so far in the Bible, the great distinguishing mark, the great blessing of God's people is that unlike other nations, the one true God is with them. So Israel is the smallest, the least threatening nation there is. And yet, as long as Yahweh is with them, they are to be the most feared among all the peoples of the earth. God's presence makes every difference in the world to God's people. Without Yahweh, they will be absolutely crushed. But with them, they have a shield. Without Yahweh, they will die in the wilderness. But with him, they will be led out. So, when God's people are in the wilderness and they remember that their next step is to go into the promised land, but they know that legitimately evil, formidable enemies await them there, what's the most important thing about Israel? What's their most important question to ask about themselves? Is it okay, well, how strong are our defenses? How many how many soldiers do we have? How many weapons do we have? Are they ready? These are not the questions they need to be asking. The only question that matters is this. Is Yahweh with us? Is he with us? And what do we have here in chapter 23? What's the word from the Lord? Verse 20, behold, he says, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. What's the answer to the most important question? Is the Lord committed to being with his people? Absolutely he is. The Lord will be present with his people. Now, interestingly, more specifically, who is it that will be with his people there in verse 20? It's the Lord's angel. You see that? Now, the identity of this angel of the Lord in Exodus and all throughout the Pentateuch, that is Genesis through Deuteronomy, all throughout the Old Testament, it's a bit confusing. It's even confusing to the most knowledgeable scholars, at least the ones that I've read, because the language, because of the language, some are convinced that this is just simply an angel, like any, anywhere else in the Bible. It's an angel of the Lord. Let's just trust him on that. But because of the way the angel is spoken of, that is, verse 22, he's authoritative. They're supposed to listen to him. Verse 21, he has the authority to forgive sins. Verse 21, he has in himself the very name of Yahweh. He's performing the very works of Yahweh all throughout this chapter. Some are convinced that the angel is actually the Lord himself, maybe even the pre incarnate Christ. So maybe you've heard of this term, a uh, Christophany, that is a revelation of Christ. Who is this angel? Well, the one thing that seems really clear to me is that it's not exactly really clear. But that doesn't actually mean that we can't understand the point. The point is crystal clear, isn't it? Through this angel, the Lord himself is with his people. That's the point. They have his presence, which, as we've said, makes all the difference in the world. Because now that the people have the Lord with them, just listen to what will be done for them. Every one of the most crucial needs of the people are going to be met because the Lord is with them. So the people need to be protected. You know what would be really nice when you step into the land of the enemy? It would be nice to have a shield. It would be nice to be guarded. To be escorted in. Verse 20. The Lord will guard his people. He himself will bring them in. Verse 23. He will go before them. He will bring you in. What about their enemies? So the enemies of Yahweh. The enemies of his people. They need to be dealt with. Well just Listen. Maybe you noticed as Scott was reading, maybe you noticed the I will statements all throughout the book, all throughout the end here of chapter 23, verse 22. The Lord, Remember, the Lord is saying through this angel, I will be hostile. I will be an enemy to your enemies. That's good news for God's people, isn't it? Verse 23, I will cut them off. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you. <laughs> the terror in... In these books of the Bible, it's the report of Yahweh's dealings with Egypt. So what did he done to Egypt? It's pretty terrifying things, right? Ten plagues, he brought them out through the Red Sea. The terror is the report of that going forward. The, the point is that the Lord will make his reputation known to the inhabitants of the land. We, saw, we see this later on in the book of Joshua, don't we, in Rahab's own story. Her testimony is that she heard the report of Yahweh's dealings with Egypt, and she believed What's the result of the terror going before them? Verse 27, I will make your enemies turn back. I will throw people into confusion. I will send a hornet before you. They they don't really know what that means either. It's only used three times in the Old Testament. It's kind of this confusing word, but the, the point still seems to be really clear, right? This terror of the Lord going forward. The point is, verse 28, I will drive them out. Verse 30, I will drive them out. Verse 31, I will deliver the inhabitants into your hand. What had the Lord promised to Abram back in Genesis 12? Remember the basis, even before he gets to the details of the promise, Genesis 12, 1, excuse me. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Listen to what he says. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Here he is in Exodus Promising to Abram's offspring exactly the same thing. We can, as God's church, we can see and delight in the faithfulness of God to his people. The Lord is with his people, he is their shield, he is their strength. This is what the psalmists rejoice in over and over again throughout the psalm. Psalm 28:7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. If the Lord is not with his people, if the Lord is not with us, we are completely hopeless. But with him, his people have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. It's worth asking, are you are you fearful, Christian? Are you fearful in this scary world? The Lord is your shield. The Lord remembers his promise to be with his people. That's point one. Promise one. They're going into battle, yes, but he will be their shield. Second thing, in Exodus 23, we see number two, the Lord remembers the promise of a place. Presence, place. Genesis 15 has already shown that at the heart of God's promise to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, It's the promise of an eternal, peaceful place to rest. Just a couple verses back there from Genesis 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted 400 years. All right, so that's just happened, right? That's, that was Israel's time in Egypt under Pharaoh, being oppressed. And this is not a surprise. What would happen next, according to Yahweh? Back in Genesis 15, verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Down to Verse 16. <clears throat> And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Notice a couple of things in this promise of God. He he promises judgment on the sinful Amorites when their iniquity is complete. And what do we have here in Exodus 23? Who's occupying the promised land? So who's in the way? Who needs to be dealt with? In their sin. Among others, he says, it's the Amorites. 23, verse 23 When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites. In other words, the Lord, he knows and he's taking care of every obstacle in the way of God's people possessing the promised land. The Lord will deal with those who've been sinning against him for a long, long time. Evidently, the iniquity of the Amorites has come to completion. And when he does. When he does act on behalf of his people, what will be the blessing of their covenant people? Genesis 15, 16, it said that they shall come back here, the land of Canaan. Did you notice that in verse 20, Exodus 23, verse 20? Behold, I, have, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Just think of the present situation of the Israelites. They're in the desert, no real provision past the day, no real home. And into that, what's the word of the Lord? He has prepared a place for them. He says, My angel's going before you to clear it out, and you'll come in. He even knows the precise borders of the land there in verse 31. The Lord does not forget his promise to give his people his presence. He's going with them. And he doesn't forget his promise to give his people a place. The place that he's prepared for them. Third promise. The Lord remembers his promise of prosperity. Prosperity. The Lord redeems his people to bless his people. And the way he does that here in Exodus is by delivering them from a place of barrenness in order to give them a place of abundance. This is the very point of the Lord going ahead and preparing a place for them, to bless them. He made this really clear earlier on in the book of Exodus. Think back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen, remember this is him talking to Moses, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land. Listen to this. To a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. The place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The promised land. It's spoken poetically as... A land flowing with milk and honey. Just flowing with provision and abundance. In other words, God is not preparing a bad place for his people. He's he's not bringing them a place of barrenness, of curse. He's bringing them into a place where they can experience his blessing. Look at verse 25 and 26 in Exodus 23. You shall serve the Lord your God. He will bless your bread and your water and I'll make sickness. I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. What is this promised land to be like? Well, it sounds a bit Edenic, doesn't it? Like the garden. It will be so wonderful. Can you imagine how this news would fall on a people dwelling in the desert that's been afflicted with these things for so long? Now what's being held out to them is a land of plenty, of provision, where sickness is going to be taken away. The terrible curse of barrenness is going to be taken away. The terrible curse of short life is no more. That's what the Lord has in store for his people. These are three promises that he wants them to bank on. He's the one bringing them up. His presence, a place, and prosperity there, blessing there. But those provident promises haven't yet come to those people, have they? So here in Exodus 23, the people of Israel have found themselves kind of caught in the in-between. Right? So they're no longer in captivity in Egypt, praise God, but they're not yet completely home either. So they're out of Egypt, not yet in Canaan. We can kind of relate to this, can't we? So, Christian, the church, in this time, in this place, we are a people who have been delivered from captivity, aren't we? We were slaves to sin and Satan, and we are no more. Praise God. And yet, like Israel, we're not quite yet home yet either, are we? We're kind of living in this in between. And living in that place, this in-between, this desert, as Israel was, as we are now, it can be tough. It can cause us to ask some questions. I want to just ponder three questions that I think maybe will bring some of these promises home for some application for us. So three questions that we might ask as we live life out in this kind of in-between stage. Out of captivity, not yet home. See if this might offer some comfort to us. One thing we might ask in a time like this is Is the Lord in control even when his people sit in the desert? Is the Lord actually in control even as his people sit seemingly helplessly in the desert? Have you ever asked a question like that about your own life? I know I have. Well, look at the text. God's people are refugees. They're sojourners. No permanent home in the wilderness. No obvious next steps. No clear provisions for even the next day. Now notice. Does the Lord seem taken off guard? All right, so when the Lord enters the scene in Exodus 23, is he anxious? Does he seem a bit concerned? Is the Lord in the corner, kind of tapping his foot, wondering what might happen next? No. The picture of the Lord is one of total control. He enters the scene with words which make clear the fact that everything that has happened up to this point, even the hard things, everything that is about to happen, it is all under his control. You know one thing that the Lord has never experienced? Being taken off guard. That's true here when Israel finds themselves in a tough spot. And it's true for us in our own lives when we start to feel the heat of living in the desert. So here's one truth that I think we can learn from our time in Exodus. And that is the reality of suffering, the experience of hard things, these are no signs that the Lord has lost control. Whatever they are, they are not that. Your experience of hard things is never a sign that the Lord has lost control. For Israel, there was a God-ordained period of walking through the wilderness before they'd be brought into the promised land. You ever, you ever seen like the geography of where they were, right? Right? It wouldn't have been difficult to go from captivity pretty quickly into the promised land. And yet that's not what the Lord ordained for them. And for us, for the church, there's a similar God-ordained time of walking through the wilderness while we wait to be brought home. So listen, I just encourage you. Christian, you can take heart. So listen, if you're, even if you're feeling the effects of living in this wilderness of a fallen world, even if you're... Feeling the heat, the pain of life in the desert that is this insane world. This has never been a sign of God's absence. This has never been a sign of God's lack of control. The Lord is in control, even when his people sit in the desert. That's the answer to question number one. Number two, another question we might be tempted to ask, is the Lord actually working for us, even if it doesn't seem like it? is the Lord actually working for us even if we can't see evidence of it? I remember a story of a young boy who was riding a small sailboat in a a large lake with his dad. And as they got out into the middle of the lake, the boy started to panic because the wind had driven them so far offshore. He didn't know how they were going to get back. What the boy didn't realize is that the sailboat was actually a paddle boat and his dad, not the wind, had been propelling them where they were going all along. His dad had been working the whole time, even while he didn't know it. One of the most difficult things about times of suffering, times of waiting, is wondering, is, is the Lord actually doing anything at all? But, in, but Exodus 23 comes along, and it paints a picture of a God who is perpetually doing working on behalf of his people, even when they can't tell. In just these 14 verses, there are 22 verbs, 22 action words attributed to the Lord himself that he's doing, he's promising to do on behalf of his people. Yes, they're currently in the desert, and that is really difficult. Yes, they have looming enemies. Yes, they have people aligned against them. They have all these things against them, against them, against them. But here's a question. Do they have anyone for them, even in the desert? Yes. They have the Lord our God. So take heart, Christian. Of course, you are not where you will ultimately be. But it is the Lord who is in control of making sure you get to where he has promised to get you. And he does not forget that promise. He's going before. He's guarding you. He's bringing you in. He's driving out evil. And Christian, we should note, Jesus himself is the one who's gone before us, isn't he? Hebrews chapter 6. The author of Hebrews says, this is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Do you feel like you need that? An anchor for your soul so that it doesn't get drug all across the ocean of this world, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having having become a high priest forever. What gives us confidence as we live this in-between life, delivered yet still waiting to be brought home, is that Jesus has gone ahead of us. The Lord Jesus has taken up residence in a real human body in this actual desert of a world. And through that body, he has gone ahead and endured the cross, the penalty for our sins, on himself. In that body, Jesus has gone ahead and faced our enemy head on, our oppressor head on, Satan himself. And Colossians 2 says that what has he done with Satan? Disarmed him. Jesus has gone ahead and endured the cross, the curse that was on our heads, death itself. Jesus has gone ahead and done away with it. Jesus has gone ahead of us and risen from the dead. And Jesus has gone ahead himself, and he's gone to prepare a place for those who trust in him. Have you read John 14 lately? The words are incredible. I can't believe Jesus said some of this stuff. Listen to it. In my father's house, he says, are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Do you see echoes of the Exodus and the Promised Land in the Gospel of Christ? It's all just a pointer to what he's doing for us. Out of Egypt I called my son, Jesus Christ, and he's gone. He's already blazed the trail into the promised land. What is he doing right now? One of the things Jesus is doing right now, according to his own words, is he's preparing a place of rest for us. For all who trust in him. He wouldn't told us that, he wouldn't have told us so otherwise. The Lord Jesus his work of atoning his people, that work is done. It's finished. Now he's working to bring us to himself. The Lord, is the Lord working for his people? Is he working for me even when I can't tell? Even when I can't see it? He is. Yes. Third question. I think this is important. Will the Lord remember his promises even when I don't? Will the Lord remember his promises even when we can't? Uh, I'm assuming you, at least in some capacity, were following the coverage of Hurricane Ian this past week. You know, when storms like that come, we get reports from meteorologists on the ground, don't we? So you saw Jim Cantore again this week. I don't know why he's doing it, but he's out there. He stands there, he's fighting the wind. And these reporters, they look around and they report the truth of what they see. He's on the mic, he's fighting the wind, he's like telling us there's a car floating away, there's trees down, the roofs of houses been blown off. But you know what I've never heard them say? I've never heard them stop and look up at the dark, cloudy, sunless sky and say, oh, oh my goodness, this just in. You're not going to believe this. The storm has blown out the sun. They don't say that, right? They don't say that because it's not possible. Hurricanes, even the worst of them, they don't blow out the sun. Christian, here's what we need to see. Times of suffering, as dark and as strong and as threatening as they may be, They do not, they cannot blow out the promises of God. That storm was huge this week. You see it? But the sun, (laughs) the sun, it's in a completely different atmosphere, isn't it? It's higher, it's bigger, it's more sure than this seemingly immense storm that's right here over us. So listen, it's true. For a short time, storms may hide the sun from your view. But they can't actually touch it. It's the same way with God's promises. There there will be times when because of stormy conditions in your life, it's really difficult to even see the promises of God, to even remember they're there. Maybe you're in a season like that right now. The clouds are thick. You haven't felt the warmth of God's promises in a long time. I'm just here to encourage you. They haven't gone anywhere. They're as sure as, on the, as in the most crystal clear, cloudless day you can imagine. The Lord doesn't lose sight of His promises like we do, He sees them all the time. That's why He is the one that keeps bringing up His promises in the Bible. You notice that? <laughs> In Genesis 12, who brought up the promises of God? God did. Genesis 15, who brought up the promises of God? God did. Genesis 17, he did. G- Exodus 3, he did. Exodus 23, 1 Samuel 7, Isaiah 53, Jeremiah 31, who's bringing up the promises of God? God is. Who keeps bringing up the promise that he will always be with you, that he'll never forsake you? He does. Who keeps bringing up the promise that God will one day bring you out of this hellish, cursed, sin filled world into a wonderfully perfect place that He's prepared for those who love Him? He does. Who keeps bringing up the promise that when this temporary life is over, this life that's marked by sin and sadness and death and disease, that we'll live an eternal life of utter blessedness, plenty and abundance? He brings that up. Who keeps bringing up the promise? That after we've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen and establish us. He does. Listen, I know the struggle makes his promises tough to see. But we're the only ones who have trouble seeing. The one who lives above the storm, he has no problem seeing the sun. He has no problem seeing his promises. Never loses sight of them. Yes, the Lord remembers his promises, even when you forget them. All of this, I think, leads to a couple of final thoughts here in Exodus 23. It seems to me there are a couple of requirements of us, God's people, here in Exodus 23. This is who the Lord is. This is what he's doing. So what about us? What's the requirement? Two things. The Lord's promises, the Lord's way of carrying out his promises will always require, number one, persistent patience. Persistent patience. Christians need to be persistent in waiting. Notice something really interesting there in in verses 29 and 30. The Lord says, I will not drive them, that is the people, the enemies, out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I'll drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. Now, is the Lord capable of driving out the enemies of his people? In one year? Less than one year? One month? One week? One day? One moment? Of course, he's the Almighty. Yet in his wisdom, does he? No. Here, according to his wisdom, and importantly for the well-being of his people in Exodus 23, he says that I will accomplish this purpose little by little, For reasons that we can't always comprehend, it's apparent here and it's apparent all throughout the Bible that our all-powerful God delights in working his providential plan in real time through process. Little by little, he created the world. Little by little, he grew Abraham's family. Little by little, he brought about deliverance from Egypt. 400 years to be exact. Which means for Israel and for us, living in and looking forward to the promises of God will take great patience. We need to know that because of the way that God has ordained things in his wisdom, the Christian life is a life of waiting. For what are we waiting? All of God's promises. We must be patient. This means we must be patient in our sanctification. People are not glorified overnight. Growth in holiness takes time. And this, by the way, is in yourself and in others in the church, isn't it? Be patient in your own sanctification. Be patient in the sanctification of other people in the church. Little by little, he's growing us in grace. This means that we gotta be patient in suffering as well, right? Listen, when we, when the Christian feels life is dry and weary, I would just encourage you, you can take heart. We, we actually are in a dry and weary land. We're not yet in the promised land. That's coming. He's preparing a place for us, but not yet. Be patient. We must expect, we must be persistent in patience. Second thing, finally. The Lord's promises, the way he's carrying them out, it will require uncompromising obedience. Uncompromising obedience. One of the things you can't miss reading through this passage is the clear demand that God is to be obeyed. Having redeemed his people, God now requires their obedience. They are a people who have been set apart by God's mercy. Now they are to be set apart by their holiness, by the way that they live in the world in which they're going. And this is hugely important as they set out to forge headlong into pagan territory, isn't it? They're about to encounter lots of people who do lots of things that are exactly contrary to the will of God for his people. And what is their role? Zero compromise. The commands are clear, right? All these do's and do not's in this passage. Verse 20 through 22, do be attentive to, do listen, obey, do not rebel. Verse 25, do serve the one true God. It's amazing it has to be said, isn't it? But here it is, plain as day, reiterating the Ten Commandments. God's people have been redeemed from false worship to true worship. Verse 24, do not bow down to their gods. Do not serve them. Do not be like them. Verse 32 says, do not make a covenant with them. Do not align yourself with them. Do, interestingly, break their idols into pieces. Amazing, part of their task in this covenant was to come into the promised land and literally destroy the idols that they found there. There's such an emphasis, clear emphasis on this point, which I think it helps us understand what a temptation this would be for people, for the people once they entered the land. So think about this reality. The Lord knows that until sin and evil are fully and finally dealt with, people who legitimately belong to him are going to be legitimately tempted when they come into contact with idols of the world. So one of the expectations we have as God's people is that we will be tempted toward worldly things. So the demand is clear. We We must be uncompromising in our allegiance to Christ. So there's coming a day when the Lord will fully and finally rid this world of sin. So one feature of the coming eternal promised land for us is that in that land there will be no sin to be tempted by. Just think about that for a minute. But until then, until then we must know that we will be legitimately tempted when we come into contact with the idols of the world. I think there's lots of ways that we can fight that. Lots of ways that we need to be aware of it. But here's here's one thing that's maybe a little more fundamental than all the practicalities. And that is, in our fight against sin and temptation, we must remember that we've been saved for holiness, right? Okay, so we've been saved, we've been set apart. But here's what we got to remember. Holiness is not a burden. Holiness is freedom. One of the enemy's biggest deception is convincing God's people, convincing us that holiness is a burden that keeps us from like real joy. When it's exactly the opposite. Holiness being set apart from by God, holiness is freedom. Sin is slavery. Living a life of holiness, it's hard, but it is not God's burden that He's heaped on you. Holiness is not a weight for you to carry. Holiness is you throwing off the weight of sin and living holy to God. Holiness is not a burden on you, Christian. It is God's blood bought blessing. He's made it possible. If this is true, if holiness is freedom, then how might we identify where we're getting this mixed up? I would just encourage you as kind of a final point of application here, ask yourself this question. Where do I think God is holding out on me? Where are you tempted to think God is holding out on your joy? If you're tempted to think that the Lord is holding out on your sexuality, you better watch out right there. That's where you'll be tempted to compromise. If you're tempted to think that the Lord is holding out on your relationship status, watch out for compromise right there. That's where you'll be tempted to go about it your own way. If you're tempted to think that maybe the Lord is holding out on your enjoyment of worldly things, entertainment, substances, whatever it might be, watch out for compromise right there. You've been saved to enjoy the blessing, enjoy the freedom of holiness. Let's not get it mixed up. Three promises, three questions, two requirements. The Lord does not forget his promises to his people. It's in your bulletin. That's all you need to remember, really? Really? He does not forget his promises to his people. Listen, church, the same God who brought you out will soon bring you in. That's what's happening. He does not deliver his people to leave them in the desert. He's preparing a place for us. You know, until then, until that day, we have a built-in reminder in our life here as the church, it reminds us of where we've been brought from and where we're being brought into. So listen, as, this morning as we come to the Lord's table, I would just encourage us, let's be, let's be mindful of the fact that the main point of this supper is not for you to demonstrate your commitment to Jesus. The main point of this supper is to demonstrate once again Jesus' commitment to you. He has remembered his promises. He has made good on them. He has done the work of atonement. He holds out the blessings of salvation through faith in the work, his work on the cross. And now you come, not to prove anything, but just to receive. That's what we come to now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we we remember that you remember. We rejoice in the fact that you are a God who does not forget his promises to bless his people. Lord, write these promises on our heart. Lord, protect us when we're tempted to forget. Make us a church who who looks forward to the day when you make good on these promises once and for all. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.